and welcome to Good Sheila, the podcast that will turn your stomach and warm your heart as we reflect on what makes us all of us tick. I'm Bron, a Melbourne comedian. And I'm Claire, I'm a lawyer in human rights. And we are longtime friends, short-time mums and lifetime dickheads. <laughs> Each episode we will tackle something in the media as well as something in life that's kicked us in the gut. Strap yourself in, mongrels, and get ready for good Sheila. So, Bron, who are you? Oh, me. Ooh, I am uh, a 33-year-old woman. I have um, two kids, and they are amazing. They're also super annoying, so I will whinge about them a lot. <laughs> I have started this year being brave, super brave. I took, I've taken a year off, at least, and um, of my... Well, fine paying job and decided to get into comedy. How's that going? It is going. <laughs> it is going. It is um it is full on and I will touch on this in other episodes. I I have just immersed myself into a world which is almost solely like available to young blokes who have been told their entire life that they can do anything. And as a tired mum I don't really belong there, but I'm giving it my best shot. I'm going to spook Bron a bit here. She's wildly funny and a raw finalist, which is a fancy comedy competition that really unknowable people like Hannah Gadsby have won. So you should see her. But yeah, you are super brave this year. I am brave. I've only got through the first heat. So if you say finalist and I don't become finalist, that's very embarrassing. She's a winner and it's very embarrassing <laughs> right? for me too. Don't lose. Oh no one will listen. <laughs> it's true. So that's where I'm at. But Claire... Who are you? I am also 33 and also a mum to two little girls who are really adorable and mad as cut snakes. I'm very tired. <laughs> um, I work for the government, which is awful. Is that, is that everyone's dream? <laughs> yeah, it's just my dream. I love going into an office with other sad people. That's yeah. really fulfilling. <laughs> and right now I work um, doing uh, stuff with gendered violence and sexual abuse, which is really uplifting. Yeah, we have the same job. It's real. Yeah, we laugh almost as much as each <laughs> other in the workplace. It's really relaxing. But your job is super important and you are changing the world for the better and you are going to bring to this podcast such an informed um, insight to what is broken about the world. Everything. And I'm so glad that you mentioned how important I am. Don't forget <laughs> it. And you're also a finalist in the commission. <laughs> I'm a finalist in the world. I'm the president. So we've decided to do this together because we've known each other forever and there's a lot about the world that interests us and infuriates us. And we want to explore it with you. I think I felt like we were talking about a lot of things and the way they were presented in the media and then discovering things about ourselves as we grew up from being stupid teenagers to old women in our 30s. To stupid adults. Stupid adults. <laughs> so, so dumb. I mean, are we, we're not young anymore, right? 33. No, we are not. No one has ever said, oh, wait, someone said I was young. Who? Um, an older lady. <laughs> it was really nice. No, but it's great. I think part of what I'm realising is how good it is to get a bit older. Oh, thank God. When was the last time you got carded? 
It, what does that mean? When you go to a bottle shop to oh. buy all of your wine oh. and they're like, excuse me, are you 12? Because <laughs> why are you buying Fruity Lexia? <laughs> um, it was, oh, I can't even remember, uh, maybe five years? Maybe I, more? Probably yeah, more, it's been ages for me as well. Not since I had kids. And I've had a few moments where I feel like I'm looking kind of good and I go into a bottle shop to buy my passion pops. And, like, <laughs> I'm just waiting. I'm just looking at the boy who's at the cashier. I'm like, please, please ask me. And they no! never do. They <laughs> just stop. <laughs> that part of my life is over. But also because you've got two kids hanging off you. <laughs> I should send my daughter and my five-year-old to buy the wine. So I'll cut her. I'll take credit. <laughs> or you could talk to them. They're like, you're, they're your friends. <laughs> So he's driving. <laughs> you guys, this is crazy. Frida, baby Frida, you love ribs. Aromatic ribs. <laughs> he was totally flirting with you, Frida. <laughs> oh my god. You should oh, add him on Instagram. <laughs> so we're not young, no, and no. it is amazing. But we do have a lot of um we do have a lot that we think about and we talk about mostly over, over fruity Lexia, but we also look at the world in a different way. My experiences are different to your experiences, and I think it, this is gonna be really interesting for us to um, see how the world looks like to, to yeah. each other. We've got a lot to talk about. So today we are going to kick off talking about sexism, elitism and cover-ups in schools. So we've thought, we've both seen the Four Corners, was it Four Corners? Four Corners. Four Corners episode on ABC which was so fascinating about St Kevin's College in Melbourne. and. It is situated, the school is situated in Turak, the most expensive suburb in all of Melbourne, and it is a Catholic boys' school. So there's a world of elitism already in the, in just in the name of it, the fact that it is only for boys, the fact that it is Catholicism at its finest, and also that it's in Turak. It, to me, it is just a recipe for disaster, and then disasters have happened. Of course they have. So it started last year when a bunch of little boys on a tram were singing a really lovely song about wishing that ladies were holes in the road and if they were dump trucks they would fill them with their load. It is just disgusting. It is and they were in a public place around a bunch of people shouting what is a pretty intimidating thing to, to sing and they were all part of this weird culture where it was like, yeah, we're important and we're entitled to say these disrespectful things about women. And there were, it was, an, it was like an army of them. Yeah. It was an army of them and they were, they all knew the words. Yeah. Uh, they were standing as well. Like there was a, it was um, a world of intimidation mm. that, and they were so proud of it. They were singing it like you would sing you know, a war song. Yeah. And if I were on that tram, especially if my daughter, if I was on the tram with my daughters, they yeah. would have been terrified. But even as a, a woman double their age, I would have been scared. That yeah. is, it's pack mentality. And it's boys who think they're allowed to invade your space, invade your, like, uh, invade your, um, uh, your, all your senses, really. And then to just 
and just be thrilled about it. And to know that it's so embedded in that culture that, like you said, they all knew the words. They knew that it was a kind of a call to arms. And we only got a sliver of it in a public place. Mm. And we were fortunate enough that somebody recorded it. Yeah. So who knows what else goes on behind those very expensive walls. But it's it's not it's not good. So mm. at the time the school came out and they, they rightly were very embarrassed. And they, they said that they absolutely did not condone the behaviour. And a whole bunch of politicians and charities came out to say that it was really important that we call out this kind of behavior because it reinforces ideas that boys are more than women and reinforced the idea that it was on the spectrum of violence against women. What's happened since? Uh, well, I have some views on even the school's reaction to anything that's happened and mm. they weren't they weren't upset at what the boys were saying. Mm. There, it is perfectly clear that they were not upset with what the boys were saying. They were upset that they embarrassed the school. They got, yeah, exactly. They embarrassed their reputation. It was all about how it looked to the public. That's right. And there's no, there's no way teachers have not heard that. The kids aren't whispering that song and saying, well, we'll just wait till we finish school and then we'll go onto a bus and sing that. That would have happened at school uh, carnivals. That would have happened on, like, perhaps the walk to the, to the bus stop, to the tram stop, whatever. Teachers have heard that. And there was no, and we find out very like, very clearly in the Four Corners episode, that the children in this school, and I say children because they They're are children, children, that they are not being taught, hey, this is actually very harmful what you're doing and the, how, you, how you see this. And these are small and tiny kids go to that school and then they get sucked into that world. And then they also sing songs like that on the on the tram and they have absolutely no idea why people are taking offence. And it's important to talk about because these are powerful people. They are the children of powerful people and they grow up to be powerful people. This is a really, really wealthy group. St Kevin's is $17,500 a year from prep, tiny five-year-olds till grade four. After that, until you graduate, it's twenty k a year. So from prep to graduation, you are spending just on school fees two hundred and fifty thousand dollars for your yeah. child. To be able to afford that for one child, let alone multiple children, is of extraordinary wealth. And you dump on and you look at their alumni. They are politicians. They are judges. They are famous sports people. They're QCs and celebrities. Loads and loads of rich powerful men and they're taking these ideas into the world and they are using them to yield power mm. and with because the alumni is accessible to us as a public and also they would be ranting about who who has come through that school all the time at assemblies and to to the parents the parents see this school as an investment so people who are sending their children there are not they're not thinking oh they're going to be they're going to be are horrible or they're going to be whatever it comes out from a good place but they're also seeing this as a huge investment and they're and they're right when they think chances of them succeeding in this world you know financially uh and the, i guess their status as well they're right that that is going to be almost certainly the case for that mm. the, those kids but do you reckon i mean you said that it's a you know it's, it's kind of you understand why the parents want their, their boys, their young boys, to succeed that way. Do you think that parents have a bit of a social obligation when they choose the schools for their children to understand the impact? Well, I think we all, well, as a parent, everyone is always trying to do the right thing. And when we, we see this school and how much of a, 
or will we see an insight into this school and it is a cult really mm. it is we are the best and we have this so parents are they'd be sucked into that as well just as much as the children are mm. and that there would be you know fundraisers and fates and what you know because they don't have enough money claire okay <laughs> they're starving they are just to drop it in here 37 billion or is it 3.7 one of They're those. Exactly it's an important dot. It's at least 100 times of the amount. <laughs> it's a lot that the the government pays for private yeah. schools to be supported every year. So mm. we're also paying for these rich little boys to grow up to be rich men. And we know that the reason why the government is so generous with schools like that is because the government is made up of they people who went there. They all went there. There was a really, really interesting article in the conversation a few years ago and they looked at ministers in the government, male ministers in the government because they're mostly men. And almost all of them had a private school education. Oh, yeah. It was just, it's, it's just shocking because inequality starts in prep. And how are they going to have an idea of how people from a public system are feeling if they've never experienced it, nor have they t- taken the time to experience it? <sighs> it is this, this, the school was put in no nice light okay mm. there wasn't a point in this in the four corners episode and it was four corners was super brave about it i imagine st kevin's is reeling from this story and they're powerful and they're so powerful and i imagine this would have taken years to get off the ground it's like the amount of research they had to do but also there had to be a number of of like things that st kevin's did wrong in order for a story to make the cut. If it was just one thing, wouldn't have happened. But the Four Corners shows that was like, there was abuse and there was sexism and there was bullying and there was uh, just, a, you know, if anyone came out and said, oh, maybe we shouldn't speak about women like that, they were labelled a traitor, mm. which is so bananas to me. But I think what I'm trying to say is this and Kevin's, we can't see it in a good way. I don't know how they're going to recover from this, but I know that they will. They will. They absolutely will. And it brings up a couple of really important ideas about whether or not private schools should exist at all. Um, Elizabeth Farrelly, who's a journalist, um, wrote about private schools, arguing there should be abolished, and I'll quote because it's such wonderful writing. She said, private schools heighten inequality, privileging the privileged, hogging the teaching talent and siphoning off kids already equipped with reading backgrounds, so depriving the public system of beneficial peer-to-peer learning. She also talked about how it tribalised kids so that they look at class and they look at the, the people around them as being special and ended her essay by saying this can only bring hatred. What mm. do you reckon, Bron? Is there a place for private schools in a modern community? Uh, I don't think so. I don't think it's necessary at all. I also – it's a couple of things – stuck out to me there it says that hogs uh hogs the teaching talent and i think that is really interesting because what does that mean teaching talent is Mm -hmm. again this leads this lends to this whole idea that high marks means a means a good student Mm -hmm. or someone who gets over 90 for their ATAR that is success which is absolutely inaccurate and a horrible message to send to students i know that private schools will get kids out of out of the system out of their system and encourage them to go somewhere else or not even encourage just tell them they have to leave the school if their scores aren't enough because that affects their data and so that child who gets told to go somewhere else they know they're not good enough for this place that they have just been told the entire time of their school is the best place in the world so the 
the so the idea that the that high school uh, high scores mean success just creates a world of broken kids. Would you send either of your kids to private school? No, I would not. Yeah. No, I wouldn't. I think w- my partner and I talked about it when we were pregnant. Oh, I was pregnant. He did nothing. I would talk to, <laughs> I talked about, we talked about like, well, would we? And I worked in the public school system. I went to a public school for some of my education years and I, I believe in it. I think it's really important, but I've also seen where we get stuffed over. Like we, we don't have the same, nearly as much resources. If someone has special needs in the classroom, they are not given the amount of help that they need. And we have, uh, like there's some teacher's aides, we don't have control of which teacher's aides they get. If the teacher's aides away that day, the teacher is left alone with a kid who needs extra help. And that's not fair. It's not fair. And we know that inequality manifests in all sorts of ways with little children. And if you are special needs, you're more likely to go to a public school. And when you are special needs and you have diverse and complex requirements in the classroom, your outcomes are entirely dependent on what you get in that classroom. Mm-hmm. And so all these children, and I, I'm, I'm just, just in context, my five-year-old is uh, I'm, I'm still learning the language around this and how to use it because this is all very new to us. Um, neuroatypical, and we're going through a process of understanding what she needs in a classroom. And we've had the conversation about private school versus mm. public schools. I've always gone to public schools. I didn't ever went to private school. My partner went to private school for high school. And um, so, but we both landed on the same thing before this all happened, that we would go to public schools all the way because that's what we believe in. We believe that our children are already really privileged. We don't want them to feel like they're entitled to anything more than what they are. And we believe in our community mm-hmm. and supporting and giving back to it. But now we have a kid. We've, we we are becoming aware of what her different needs are and what that might look like for in a classroom. A couple of people have asked us what we will whether we'll keep her at the school, like as oh, in oh wow yeah so like whether or not we think about moving her somewhere else. And it's really really open because it's where she'll get more support. Mate, I see where they're coming from, but also when considering that there is more kids with special needs in public system, mm. those teachers are the ones who experienced with yeah. dealing with yeah. dealing with it. I know that um, the teacher that your child that Stevie's got this year, she knows the way around this. She's so experienced with kids with any kind of different needs that it's almost the best place for her to be. Yeah. If she went to a private school, then maybe there'd be a teacher's aide to help her. But does that mean that the teacher's better? No, it does not at all. No. So this is what I'm. This is what makes me a bit cross about um, how private schools, you know, they hog the good teachers. We see good meaning high marks, high marks, and that is such a dangerous message to send to young people. Uh, and but, uh, you know, we look at Sir Kevin's and their enormous ATAR scores, which they get year after year after year because teachers tell them exactly what to write. I, it makes me so mad. But we see we see that as a, as a successful education system and it just cannot be. And the things that they uncover in uh, from St Kevin's with the, how they – there's zero education on um, gender equality and there is countless um, – countless records of abuse uh, uh, kind of sexual abuse or just bullying or 
gendered abuse with the with the female teachers and these this is not creating successful successful people it's creating rich people sure it's creating entitled people great it is not creating good people so what you're unpacking here is a different idea of what success is and this is i think a lesson for both public and private schools and that the hr is not the end of the world and you need to you're making good kind productive people who can function in a community but unfortunately the answers to a lot of those questions are about how much money you can take home mm. and it's a really really complex massive thing um the other thing i really want to talk about was um single sex schools and so it is that kevin's is a single sex school and um, the prevailing narrative behind them is that boys and girls learn differently despite all of the evidence with your with your background from what do you reckon uh i will i went to school at only co-ed schools and then i taught at a co-ed school um i think i think that it, i didn't ever see there being a level of discomfort that people that some parents are scared of so what i mean by that is some parents are, i assume the reason why people send their kids to single sex schools is because they they think that they're, they're going to be more focused and that they're con if there's a girl in the classroom if they've got if the, this woman has a son so for example if there's a girl in the classroom this woman might be scared that her son's just going to have an, a constant stiffy <laughs> and how can the poor boy think if this girl is giving him a stiffy you know <sighs> <laughs> and that just can't like just like sure that they like their brains go to sex a lot of, all the time but that happens in a single sex school as well and also what does that mean for the kids who are gay does that mean that 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 thing they won't learn anything it's constant <laughs> stiffies this is it, it, it i don't really understand any of the arguments that have been put forth They're for really single archaic. sex schools and they those kind of arguments about the destruction of of children of the other gender really reinforce this idea that little boys in particular are subject to their sexuality that they don't have any control of it that they get you know that they're overtaken mm. by their oh, sexual yeah. desires and that that somehow the girls are accountable for it and it's a really really problematic idea in itself but also all of the research says that there is no difference in the way that boys and girls process information or learn or mm. remember or read or do maths it's just a really convenient narrative for these schools to push we need a special type of education for boys versus girls and um, a study by an American university found that students from gender segregated schools were actually more likely to believe in gendered stereotypes like boys are better than math and girls are better at language arts and another study by a university in Texas said that separation by gender in the schooling system actually perpetuates the stereotypes that women are warm and gentle and caring and that men are strong and stoic leaders. Yeah. And so the it's it's looking at the all the evidence, the research by this uh, behind this, there's a real divide in it. Mm. Some reports and definitely the narratives that these schools have say that there are better outcomes for kids in gender segregated schools, but others which are more evidence based on my look say that any of these claims have no grounding. All they do is reinforce these ideas that men and women are different and should be treated as such. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think that when you put a number, like a bunch of boys together, often when you're going to address those boys, you say, boys, listen, boys, mm. they're constantly reminded of their gender. Yeah. Even when no one is talking about their mm. gender, that it, it is it constantly, and it comes up. And so the, all the stereotypes that surround what it means to be a boy 
are going to be kind of piled on. Yeah. Even in the tiny, most innocuous conversations with someone, their gender becomes important. Mm. And so forever, their gender is going to be, well, I'm a boy, that's just what I do. And this mentality of boys will be boys and excuses that surround that. And boys then have very little expectation of their own behaviour because boys will be boys. And the evidence, again, really, really reinforces this. So back in 2010, Harvard looked at how single-sex schools teach their children. So it's, there's a really, really stark difference that the study found um, between boys' education and girls' education in these learning environments. So the boys' schools focused on facts and the girls were primed with kind of social narratives and developing emotional intelligence. And we talk about the boys, like the boys in St. Kevin's, and we think about the attributes that succeed in the world, right? You are resilient, you are rational, you are unemotional, you're objective. These are attributes that we as a community celebrate in leaders. We reward them in the workplace and they are unavoidably stereotypically male. So these little boys in prep in five in their most formative years walk into a school where their gender is celebrated, they are rewarded for their gender, their gender is reinforced and they walk out really being the community's worst nightmare, right? Yeah. Chanting on trams about effectively raping women. Yeah. Yeah, but all and then women get girls get really good at magic. Exactly. Here are your ones, girls. They don't work. Go to. We're gonna fill you with hope and then remind you that it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. <laughs> it's just so broken. So no, I'm even though my kid has special needs, I will not be sending her to a private school because I fundamentally do not believe in them. Good. I think they're dangerous. Yeah, and also she would be so ungrateful. I know, <laughs> so rude. And like, you'd imagine, she'd be going home, she'd be like, Mummy, that's <laughs> never a much. Now, it would be too much. Yeah. Oh, no, no, she is not going. None of our children are going, no. and that's final. And I think it's also really important, and I know that I brought it up, but it is also really important to understand that public school have got, public schools have inundated with amazing teachers that have to deal with all so much different things. And if a kid is uh, isn't performing to the level that they're supposed to be at, public schools don't kick them out. They don't. They just, uh, they, they can't. They can't <laughs> they don't want them to go. No, even if you're, like, Stevie's teacher's <laughs> like, I need to get Stevie out. She is really impossible. Stevie is stuck there. She's yeah, stuck she can't go anywhere <laughs> unless she decides to leave, which has been an issue. One of the things we've been struggling with is that Stevie just decides she doesn't want to be in class anymore, so mm. she leaves. Oh, that's right. She Very disappears. Helpful. It's so helpful. <laughs> God, her poor teacher. I'm sorry, Joe. Yeah, once again, everyone is, public school teachers are paid very they well. They are so paid. They're so rich. It's fine. <laughs> so we are going to talk about the personal now, and this is actually a really interesting segue because we're talking about the impact that men have on women. Brent, tell me about a time when you are a teenager where – a boy said something that devastated you. Mm -mm -mm. Let me think. Oh, as a teenager, I remember as a, the, thing, the first time that I realised my looks mattered to boys was when I was playing tips or some people got tiggy with some kids. I would have been maybe seven. And it, it took me a while to grow into my nose, Claire. All right? You're kidding me in the face as we speak. <laughs> Ow! <laughs> That's for con context. It wasn't just by the way. No. I took me a while to grow into my nose. As a little kid, I felt like I didn't realise that my nose looked any different. And when I look at photos, it didn't. It was a normal 
kids' nose. Functional, right? It yeah. smelled shit. It did. It's oh, it good. was very <laughs> handy. And I remember playing this boy who was a bit older than me, had a huge crush on my sister, and he, as I was chasing, he turned around and then he like squished his nose down to like mimic my flat nose. I don't know what he thought it was, but I remember feeling overwhelmed with shame and being like, oh my God. But he wasn't doing that to the boys. No. He didn't do that to the pretty girls, who was my sister. It was just me and my nose and instantly he just like just took the wind out of me and I no longer wanted to play that play anymore. You were obliterated. Yeah. Yeah. You had that power. Yeah. Yeah. So when when I was in year 11, year 12, I was walking through like the common area at school and I was wearing, I remember what I was wearing, it was like these cool trousers and a cat power t-shirt and I was really comfortable and walked past a group of boys and one of them went fugly. And I remember just, it was like someone had punched me in the stomach. It just took everything out of me. And one made up word. One one made up word that means fat and ugly. And they knew what that word meant. They knew what it did. And they were just using it to wield power. We thought these days were over now that we're old mums drinking free Alexia. But they're not. So... We were in Adelaide um, last week at the Fringe Festival and Bron had some shows which was amazing and she was great. And it was a big deal because it was, it was like you were, at a, you were at an, an, an international festival. It's a massive thing. You're about to walk into your first gig. I was taking photos. I was super duper you proud so of you. You were so proud and you cried. I was so – I didn't even cry. You cried. It was – you were very proud. It was, I was really nice. because your nose you. kept hitting me. <laughs> It's just a normal nose, P.S. <laughs> and um, so, look, it, it, this is this is a weird thing to talk about, but you've always been the whole one since we were friends and we were teenagers, and that's fine. It's just part of our dynamic, and it's, it's a weird thing to talk about, right? Because so we've weird. never talked about it before. No, I mean, and it's quite excruciating to talk about. I'm so uncomfortable. <laughs> it's why. okay, but this is this is important context, right? You've been the whole one, and that's fine. That's just always been part of the dynamic that we have never acknowledged. We've never talked about. It is not a nice thing to talk about. Anyway, I'm standing here, proud, proud as punch of you, crying, and this guy count, walks up to us, and at this point you're like, I have to go to the toilet. And he started walking away, and he started to say hi to you, and you kept walking, and I was like, oh, do you know Bron? And he was like, no, and he was annoyed at me already. And I was like, oh, have you seen him perform before? And he's like, no, and he was so angry, and I was like, whoa, this is really weird, and then I realised that he was trying to hit on you. And I was like, oh, okay. And I I said something really innocuous, like, are you having a good time or what are you doing at the festival? And he looked at me and he looked me in the face and then his eyes dropped to my feet and then they went back up to my face and he said, you're just the ugly friend. And in that moment, it was like being a teenager again, like all of the air went out of my body and... What I just, I just, like, it was awful. I just, like, and I was, like, I, I needed, I needed to not make it an issue that night because you were performing, another friend was performing, then we were seeing a show, and all I could think about again and again were those words. And, like, I am in my 30s, I have two lovely kids, I'm relatively successful, and all I was was that sentence in that moment. It's so disgusting. I'm so angry at that piece of shit who did that. But also, 
I, uh, he would have known he the reaction. Exactly that, what he was but, doing. And you did not. Uh, even if you, even if you kicked him in the dick, and then <laughs> and like spat on him and did all these things for him to then say, "Oh, this, this is," like he's. It's just still so unfair to feel like that is something that you needed to hear. Exactly. And he also knew that this is something I've thought about a lot since then. Like, just to give you context of this, dude, we're not talking about, like, some snotty, dickly 19-year-old who's still figuring out how his dick works. He was a man in his 30s. I think he was older than us. I can remember what he was wearing. He was wearing, like, pressed chinos and an iron shirt. Like, dude was put together. He was an adult man. And he knew exactly what that meant. He wasn't like, oh, you're the unfunny friend. Or, oh, you're the friend with a different outfit on. He was like, this is the word. This is the word that hurts women. This is a word that will get her in the gut. And I need to punish her for the fact that her friend wasn't around for me to hit on. So broken. It's just disgusting. I would never, I would never, ever... You told me the next day as well. I, well, I couldn't tell you that night because you just performed. I didn't want to be like, hey, this huge, massive thing that's happened to you, by the way, here's my stuff. I don't know how you did it. It was amazing because I remember standing on stage while everyone was walking in and I have no idea. I didn't see this man or talk to this man. I had no idea who he was. But I, when you walked in. He was there. He was like he two rows sit- behind me. Yuck. So you just sit through my show with this revolting man and hearing him probably raw laughing at my hilarious jokes. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you would have had to experience them in that tiny little space with that horrible man who just took the wind out of you. Yeah. And I hate him so much, but I also think it's really important that this, how this happened and how we can look at this and be like, oh my God, we are not, we are not past that no. stage of feeling like, we don't care. Like, and, and not past that stage where the male gaze is not important anymore because it's so embedded in the way that we see ourselves and understand ourselves and value ourselves that when it is taken away, and so much already has taken away from it, right? We're, we're older, we've got children, all these things make us more and more invisible and less and less important to men as an aesthetic creature but it still is so central to our identity and our sense of self that when someone in such a you know awful way challenges it Mm. I was nothing I like I I still I still feel every like this is what a week ago now or not even a few days ago every time I think about it I feel like I could cry Mm. isn't that just awful like a stranger and a word and he just took everything out of me and what is also really interesting is I've talked to a few people about it now and the first response of everybody is like, no way, you're so beautiful, mm. and which is lovely, but it's the only way that, that everybody knows to make it better, right? It's like that's a lovely response, but it, it doesn't matter what I look like. The point is that he had a power and he, he you know, he Exercised moved it over it. me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think I know I said, I've said to you, by the way, you're really beautiful, because I, th- I, it's, I need you to know that, that he's 100% wrong. But I know that you're saying that's not the point. Mm. But for those listening, she's so beautiful. That's very kind. But it's, also, it's also not, not important. It doesn't point. matter. I've know that that we. But it's like you know we dress in a certain way because we want to look a certain way. And when you really unpack it, who are we doing that for? And 
fuck's sake, I hope it's not for blokes. I think it is. I think oh no. how else, but, but that's how we've been socialised, right? That's how we position our body. And it's really interesting looking at, like, the history of why we wear particular makeup and why we draw attention to particular things. It's it's because it's a, it's got it's got a sexual basis. You know, it's why we wear tight things and colourful colours and tight jeans. And, and you and I are both sitting here and, you know, skin skin tight. Skin tight jeans. Like, I what love are they these called? Jeans. What are these called? They're again? called sexy jeans. <laughs> yes. <laughs> They're called, I wear these for the men jeans. <laughs> mm. no, what just, are they called? It's called skinny jeans. Skinny jeans. They're both wearing skinny jeans. Look, I love these jeans too. I've them. had them since Stevie was a baby. But I could be wearing some really comfortable trackies right now, and I'm not. Yeah, but why am I wearing these? Because they. I'll take them off. <laughs> Just use your nose to undo the zip, would you? <laughs> no, we do. I, but I also think that we, like, you know, we start to care about. I feel like we start to care about it less. But no, we're never usually accosted with such cruel. Yeah. If a woman said that to us, I think it would. I think it would hurt as well. I don't. I don't. If so a woman, woman said if a to woman you're said ugly. It, yeah, look, it would hurt, but in Men a way. Not, gee, okay. Yeah, it's, it's like it's like their assessment matters, but it doesn't matter to my psyche in the same way a man's assessment. As like a, as a as a heterosexual woman who's grown up in a you know a really really misogynistic patriarchal society, a man's idea still or idea of me still matters more. Than a woman's oh, wow. idea of me, and that's this has been the really confronting thing about unpacking this because I've realised that despite my work, despite all my very strong views, I still have a man's a man's opinion of me is still really really central to the way I think about myself. But if we even take it straight back to the St Kevin's thing, it's because they're the most powerful people in the world. Exactly, so and they uh, matter. They do matter. They, they make matter. the fucking rules. They enforce the rules. They profit off the rules. This is this is a really really powerful group of people chanting on the tram who can disembowel a woman with four words. Like this is this is the problem. Well, I think we need to do things in every day to try and challenge that. Yeah. We need to go around and call every man ugly <laughs> and then we win. Hey, you ugly slut. <laughs> Say it with me. <laughs> yeah, let's chat on the tram. Exactly. Ugly slut. Appoint every single man. Yeah, that's perfect. We'll just start with the boys at school, at primary school pickup. Yeah. Just get them used to it. Yeah, hey, ugly slut. <laughs> They'll be like, Mom, she's here again. Why is she wearing tracksuit pants? <laughs> oh, it's just, but like, what what is a realistic way that you can unpack 33 years of socialization? No, I, I can't look honestly. I don't think I can ever dislodge some of those ideas and how they impact me. But what I can do is change those ideas for the next generation. Mm-hmm. And I fight to make it so that my, what my girls look like doesn't matter. And that's really hard as well because it's everywhere. Like an idea of little girls are pretty, little girls are gentle, little yeah. girls wear frilly, lovely things. Like frilly, lovely things are great. I wear frilly, lovely things all the time. But that that step towards, you know, saying to a little girl, oh, you look really pretty today, rather than be like, you are strong and brave and clever. Yeah. Like those little micro, micro acts are really important because – I might be a little bit too far gone, but my daughters aren't. Well, that's right. 
And it, it, like you said, the micro acts. It's the micro acts of sending a kid to a private, private all boys school. Mm. Like even though that seems like a huge, like it might seem like an innocuous thing that you're doing for the betterment of your child. Imagine having an innocuous thing to do, being spending two hundred fifty thousand dollars. You guys are really rich. <laughs> <laughs> you're so rich. I'm sitting in a rental property. The carpet looks like it's been speed on. <laughs> and you're dreaming about tracksuit pants. <laughs> no. <laughs> Dream big, girls. No, it is, I think it's the little things of like when you see a bunch of boys together instead of saying, hey, boys, can you? It's it's tiny little things that continuously divide the genders mm. and continuously say that you are different and you are more and you are less mm. and you act this way and you act this way and that is why we treat each other differently and that is why that person's going to get hurt mm. when you say this word. So next time when you see a group of children, just say, hey, fugly slut. <laughs> yes, <laughs> irregardless of their gender, okay? <laughs> Did Let's, you just say irregardless? Irregardless. Yeah, she's Disregard. English teacher. Disregardless. Unregardless. <laughs> oh, regardless. <laughs> We've been good, Sheila. This has been fun, our first episode. Yeah, lighthearted. Yeah. So, yeah, relaxing. <laughs> yeah, thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.